The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Okay, let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. Okay, it is the heart of the Father that each one of us step into the story personally. Um, So this is the story of Matthew who's been sharing the gospel, and now all of a sudden he puts himself into the story. And I want to just say to you, that's what the gospel is all about. There comes a moment in time where you're not just one of seven billion people on a planet made by the Creator, but that you have a name and you are known. I want you to think about this, uh, because we live in a celebrity culture, and many people feel like they're, you know, they don't make a difference or they're not known. Trust me. You are known. You are known by God. You are known by the creator of the universe. You are significant. The very fact that you exist uh, speaks volumes of your value and your importance being made in the image and likeness of God. So Matthew chapter 9 verse 9 says simply this, as Jesus passed on from there, so he's been telling the miracles of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, He, Jesus, saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And so he, Matthew, arose and followed him. So Matthew is telling the story about himself, (laughs) that he was a tax collector. In the most intriguing way, we have Matthew's own personal testimony of how he got included in this whole movement and becoming a disciple, one of the foundations of the church, and the first of the Gospels in the New Testament. As Jesus continued to minister and do healings and miracles and teachings around the Sea of Galilee, Jesus spotted a tax collector named, in Hebrew, Matityahu, or what we call Matthew. His name means gift of God. And Jesus walked up to Matthew, the tax collector's table, and said, follow me. And Matthew says he didn't say a word. He didn't respond. He didn't ask a question. He just dropped everything of his life and calling and work, got up, and began following Jesus. And he was never the same. And then he began to tell that story. Now, as a tax collector... Um, Matthew would have been doubly despised by his own Jewish people because the Jewish people rightly thought of tax collectors as traitors. Why? Because even though they were Jewish, they worked for the Roman government, and they had the force of Roman soldiers who had been stationed in the Middle East to make sure that all of the Jews who were under the boot of Roman authority paid their taxes. So they would choose, instead of a Roman tax collector, they would pick a Jewish guy who kind of had to betray his people and then use the soldiers to force the people to pay taxes. They were the most visible form of Jewish collaborators with Rome. You can imagine the Jewish people gritting their teeth, wishing they could have the strength to fight and rebel and get their independence. And then they find one of their own who's burdening them with taxes. And as bad as that was... It was commonly known that such agents made their living by, okay, Rome says we got to get this much from you, then they would add a little surcharge and overcharge and extort higher fees. That's how they made their money. And there were no rules. You could, you know, gouge people as much as you could get away with. 
Not exactly the gift of God that his name would would say. In fact, one of the historians writes this, when a Jew entered the customs service, he was regarded by his own people as an outcast from society. He was disqualified from ever being a judge or even a witness in a court session and was officially excommunicated from the synagogue. And in the eyes of the community, he was a disgrace and that disgrace extended to his entire family. So that's the guy that Jesus now calls to follow him. So going to my next point, I want to just emphasize again in verse 9. Jesus is saying not only to Matthew, he's saying to you and me today, follow me. What's interesting is he didn't wait for Matthew to repent, start going back to synagogue, have second thoughts. Apparently, while he was still being a heathen, you know, compromised, traitor, tax collector, Matthew started hearing about Jesus. Apparently, Matthew got up from his table and went and listened in on a few of Jesus' teachings. Can you imagine as this man, and we don't, we're not told what happened. You know, there's, I can imagine that Matthew was born into a Jewish family. He was raised with the Jewish tradition. He was told the stories of our people, how we got started with Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and he had 12 sons, and we became Israel. Moses led us through the wilderness. God gave us these commandments. He brought us here. This guy named David came, and all he had raised with all of that, but something happened that made him go, you know what? No to our religion and no to God. And I'm, I'm going to just get as much pleasure and money as I can out of life. It's too cold and, and bitter. But no doubt uh, he had been watching Jesus or listening to Jesus or observing some of the miracles. And, and what I find beautiful is as Jesus would teach as he would perform a miracle, as he would deliver someone from demonic strongholds or raise someone from the dead, he saw Matthew, the tax collector. He noticed and watched him listening and paying attention. And Jesus was able to look and read into Matthew's heart that he was missing something in his life. Even though outwardly, to judge the book by its cover, he was sold out reprobate. But Jesus saw something different in him. And you know what, I believe that we're right now in this moment, even with the passing of Billy Graham, where the gospel is going to be going around. Uh, And the, the truth is, there are multitudes of Matthews who maybe, you know, were raised in the church or they had heard something, but they've been turned off. Somehow something disconnected and they're bitter, or because of the hypocrites, or maybe they were abused by people that said one thing and did another, maybe sometimes in their own family, and yet they're, they're angry at God, they're not walking with God, don't even care about that, and yet there's something inside that yearns uh, for the truth. This abrupt change, I think it, it was something that had been building for a time. And I believe that we're going to see many, many people come to the Lord all around the world in this next season ahead. It's interesting that archaeology, especially since Israel became a nation, which when you think of the last 2,000 years, uh, there was no Israel. But since 1948, when the Jewish people came back to their homeland, archaeology has, has literally gone through the roof 
with discovery after discovery after discovery after discovery, proving again and again and again stories, names, places, Bibles, events that are in the Scriptures. And there is now archaeological evidence that fish taken from the Sea of Galilee were all taxed. So this means that Jesus took as a disciple a tax man that probably had taken money from Peter and James and John. Can you imagine that? This might have made for some awkward introductions into the disciples, right? Hey, our new guy, brother Matthew. Hi, guys. (laughs) Awkward. But you know what? Uh, He said not a word, for his soul was speechless. It was Here's what's beautiful about this. Matthew's response, Jesus came up and said, follow me. I immediately left everything. So I want to say a word to those who are listening. Maybe you're in church, maybe you're not. Maybe you're hearing this on radio. Somehow you're hearing it online, whatever. And you, you kind of, you've got the policeman thing. You're out here like, don't get anywhere near me. You wait, you watch. Because God can set a man or a woman up, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, unexpected grace comes to you, and everything that you thought and had prejudged about the church and Christianity and God and the truth and whatever just gets ripped like scales from your eyes, and you realize that there is a God. You always knew that. That's how you're angry with Him. But you also realize he loves you, that he had a bigger plan than you realized, and that your heart starts overflowing with that this God is not who I thought he was. He is loving. He is gracious. He is forgiving. He is kind. And I'm going to follow him. Matthew lost his material possessions, but he gained eternal life. He lost a career, but he found a destiny. And finally, when Matthew left that tax table, He took one thing from it. The only thing he took from his tax table was his pen. And God took that guy and used that pen to write the very first of the Gospels, the book of Matthew. Amen? Okay, well, let's go to the next set of verses, verses 10 through 13. Whoops. Okay, chapter chapter 9, verse 10. It says, Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, Many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not call to come the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I want to make this point here that Jesus teaches us the difference between acceptance and approval. Um, How do I explain this? That, That if you have been a Christian for a long time, let's say, there's something that can happen to believers the longer that they walk with the Lord, or the longer a fellowship, family, couple, or home is Christian. And and it's not necessarily a good thing. We can become isolated and insulated. Obviously, we get convicted of our sins. We see the world. Your spiritual eyes are open. You realize there's a lot of deception out in the world, and you want to protect your marriage, your kids, your family, your life, you know, from all of that. 
But we can come to where we, we create our own little bubble of heaven on earth where we want to just not get in touch with the world. Uh, we don't want to have anything to do with them. And, and that's not... Look, if God wanted it to be that way, He could have made it so that the moment your eyes are open and you see the Lord, you repent, you ask Jesus in your heart, and then you just pop, you disappear, and you're in heaven. He could, he could have done that, right? But He leaves us here. Why? Well, there are several reasons. One is for our own personal growth and development, but another reason is He leaves us here to influence others so that they can have that experience and their eyes can be open. He wants us to be like salt. And the whole, you know, point of, how many of you like to add a little salt to your food now and again? I do. I love, man, I love salt. I, I caution you, if you ever go to lunch with me and, and chips are on the table, they're going to get some salt. I'm just telling you. Even when you say what they've already salted, I will grab your hand and say, I know, but they need help. I mean, I, it's almost bad enough where I got a salt lick on my way out the front door. But anyway, I wouldn't want to go into that. So... Salt brings flavor, but it does no good when it's just sitting there all filled up in that little deal. You got to shake it out. So the idea is not so much that we want to get three million people into all the churches. In fact, there's not enough churches. We don't have enough room to get everybody in. We're salt. The idea is for you to get, you know, salty and get close to the Lord. But then when you get shaken out Monday through Friday into the world, what a little bit of salt does. It's purifying, and it also adds flavor. But some of us like to just hang into the, you know, the little container, and that's not necessarily good. So Matthew, he's radically saved. Now, this guy was probably, you know, he's a, he's a traitor, he's a reprobate. All of his friends are a bunch of, they're, they're like him. And Matthew's like, hey, you know that prophet guy saying the Messiah guy, supernatural's happening, miracles happening. Uh, he invited me to follow him. What? They're probably all looking at him. What happened to you? Uh, and he goes, I don't know, but I invited Jesus to my house for a dinner Friday night. How many of you want to come? They're like, oh, we're all in. We want to do that. So they all get invited now to be with Jesus. And I want you to notice what Jesus did and what he did not do. He did not say, well, Matthew, yeah, I got you, but I don't want to hang out with your friends. You know who you hang out with. He did not say that. He's like, yeah, I want to go. Jesus wanted to take advantage of Matthew and the transformation in his life and then influence all of those friends. Now, what happens sometimes is us is we're, you know, like the religious leaders are like, what in the world are you going to that dinner? Do you know what kind of people they're going to be there? You know, and so that's, I want to warn you about a disease that certain Christians can get. And it's where every, you, you got to stay away from everything in the world so much that it's like, it's hard to be a Christian. Man, it's tough to be holy. You can't hang out with people like that. What did you go to that dinner for anyway? You know, I call them pirate Christians. You ever met one? They're pirate Christians. Holier than thou, judgmental, hypocritical, mean, piratish. And so you're like, what did you go to that party for? And you go, well, because Jesus was there. And they're like, he was? What did he say? Well, he's actually asking, where were you? Because he was looking for you there at the party. Because <laughs> he's going to be reaching out. 
So we have to, there has to be a balance. Now, let me just say this. What Jesus did by going to Matthew and his house and all of his very sinful friends is that Jesus offered acceptance. Acceptance, why? Because they're human beings. Acceptance because God is a God of love. Amen? Uh, this scripture is in your notes, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Let's read this out loud. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves people. God loves sinners. He loves human beings, and he wants to be able to impact them. Now, let me, so Jesus said, look, I'm a physician, and physicians want to, you know, deal with sick people. Now, I know there are many people in Maranatha that are part of the medical community. We got a lot of doctors, nurses, technicians that are part of the medical field. I just want to say something that I think is kind of obvious. If you're a doctor or a nurse or a technician in a hospital or whatever, and you're called uh, to that, your life will be surrounded by sick people, right? That's the whole thing. It's not good to say, yeah, I'm a doctor. I just can't stand sick people. That's not, that's not going to work very well. So um, actually what Jesus is saying is, I want to be where the real people are. I want to have an impact on them. His aim was to reach deep into the heart of this reprobate class, so to speak. By the way, who in fact did not mind being called reprobate by those whom they deemed as hypocrites, which to them was even worse. So um, there, there is a love that God has and, and so Jesus says to them, actually, he says in verse 12, when Jesus heard that from the religious community, the holier than thou's, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Um, this is a principle that the criticizing Pharisees did not understand. Um, they needed to learn something. Jesus wanted them to go to their own scriptures to learn about it. So let me say that we are to accept all human beings, love all human beings of every stripe and of every kind, but I also want to add acceptance is not the same thing as approval. Just because Jesus went to the dinner, sat with them, ate with them, fellowshiped with them, and, you know, talked with Matthew and all these others, there was a lot of exciting dynamics going on. It didn't automatically mean that Jesus approved of all their lifestyles, their choices, their attitudes, their habits, and all the rest of it. But how many of you know that by Jesus being there, there was something of an acceptance that was different from the religious community they felt accepted, and that's how there was a tenderness, there was a mercy that had come from God in heaven, and, but it wasn't the same thing as approval, and I don't think that they would have interpreted it in that way. So I want to go on to the next point here uh, from verse 13, where Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, Jesus says, hey, religious people, you <laughs> judgmental, critical, uh, hypocrites, uh, you need to go back to your own scriptures. You're very good at teaching them. You're not so good at living them. Let me tell you how you've missed the heart of my Father. His number one characteristic is a heart of mercy. 
In fact, it is more important to him than sacrifice. Now, interesting, Jesus quotes from the book of Hosea, one of the prophets in the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Because back in the days of the prophet Hosea, the, the Jewish people were very good about being religious. They were very good about uh, their rituals. They were very good at following their traditions. Uh, they were very good at bringing all of the required sacrifices. But they had left off and forsaken mercy. And the reason that they had forsaken mercy is they had really neglected the Word of God. They were doing something that was external, perfunctory, outward, uh, you know, judgmental, but they weren't really touching the hearts of the nation, and they missed it. And God rebuked them through His prophet Hosea. Jesus is saying, you need to learn something. You think they need to learn something. You need to learn something, that God is all about mercy. In fact, it's even more important to Him than the sacrifices that you are making. So Jesus rebuked uh, the religious leaders that were there criticizing, and he really commended Matthew and the change in his life and how that was going to impact all of those who were there at that meal on that night. Can I hear an amen on that? Do you hear what I'm saying? So I want you to think about that. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for my choices? What does that mean for me that um, God may use me like a Matthew in a particular setting And look, you want to go not to be influenced, but you want to be able to bring your influence and to bring your light and bring the love and the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's go to the next uh, one. The hour of the new covenant has come. This is the newness that Jesus came to bring. So we'll close with verses 14 through 17. It says, then Jesus, or then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So this is interesting. You know, there's some of John the Baptist's disciples who are now following Jesus because John pointed them to follow Jesus. John had been beheaded. But they were fasting and praying. And now Jesus comes along, and he's going to parties like at Matthew and his friends' houses and eating and drinking and talking with them. And so they're kind of going, hey, wait a second. I mean, we were with John, and we were repenting and humble and fasting, and now you're the Messiah, but your guys are eating and drinking and going around to parties and dinners, and this, what is wrong with this picture? And Jesus says to them, hey, he goes, when the bridegroom finally comes, it's time to rejoice. Now, I don't know if you knew this, but in a Jewish you know, wedding with a young couple, um, there is fasting. I mean, it's considered a holy sacrament to get married in the eyes of God, where two literally become one. Uh, it's not just something out, you know, outwardly or perfunctory. It's genuine. It's real. God makes two and makes them one, which is a beautiful picture of our being made one with the Lord. So they will fast, getting ready and going up to it. The other thing to notice about a Jewish wedding is that um, 
It's very expensive. How many would agree weddings are getting more and more and more expensive? Well, nothing compared to a Jewish wedding because ours are about a day, but a Jewish wedding lasts seven days. All the people that you invite, family and friends, you have to help house them and feed them for seven days. And literally, it was kind of like your life savings went into your, you know, into your marriages. So they got it to where, can you imagine, you know, how many weddings might happen in a certain community? And would you not be surprised to discover there were some young rascals who said, why should I go get a job when I can just go from wedding to wedding and get free food and wine? And there were these little scruffy characters that would go. So that's why they started saying, look, for our wedding, you had to have a sign. There, there was like a certain sash or a you know, shawl or something so that if you showed up and you didn't have that, they go, no, 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 you're, you're not invited. So that's why Jesus said, you need to know, you need to have your garments for the great wedding that is happening in heaven. But John the Baptist was, was leading up to the wedding, of, and now Jesus says the bridegroom is here. These are the disciples. The bridegroom is, so this is a time of feasting. It is a time of outreach, and it is a time of joy. Now, you and I, as the church, we're married to Jesus, and we're getting ready for the great marriage supper of the Lamb to come. So it's appropriate that we would be fasting now as we're waiting and anticipating being with him. But he, he starts off with that message, and then Jesus goes to another one. You don't put new wine into old wineskins. And there are some people that I think have gone too far in interpreting that, and they basically say the old wineskin is the entire Old Testament. Uh, not just the law, but the entire Old Testament, that's all the old, and now it's just, you know, the idea of grace and mercy and forgiveness, and, and you know, they kind of are, are mixing the whole thing. I want you to read with me uh, what's in your notes, Jeremiah chapter 31. Verse 31. Let's read this scripture out loud. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the promise God made of, I'm going to give you a new covenant. So it's true. There's the old covenant of the law, and then there is the new covenant, and Jesus is talking about that. But what is the new covenant? And what is the promise of the new covenant? Right in the middle of Jeremiah 31, 33, it says, I will put my, what? Law, circle the word law, where? Not on stone, but in their minds, and write it, where? On their hearts. And then I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jesus had already said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came that the law might be fulfilled. So there's some people that have taken grace to such an extreme that, yeah, we're not under the law. You can basically live any lifestyle that you want, and it's all covered with grace and mercy. And that is an extreme. That's not what Jesus was saying. He was actually saying, yes, there will be a new covenant, no longer the sacrifice of animals, it will be the sacrifice of the Son. And the blood of a human being, the Messiah, will wash away the sins of humanity. But in this new covenant, I will now write my law. God does have, as Billy Graham said, rules for lives, for marriage, 
for holiness, for righteousness, for walking in the kingdom of heaven. And he will write that in our minds, and he will write it on our hearts, and he will be our God. But here's the difference. Rather than externally looking at the law, trying to live up to it, failing, so all the law did was show us that we couldn't live it, now his spirit has come, and he's changed our minds, renewed our minds. Now we can think with the thoughts of God. But now we also have new power by the Holy Spirit. We have the power to live in a way that is holy, that is righteous, and that restores the glory that God had given all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Amen? We can walk in power and in the presence of the Lord. So when Jesus said, uh, you don't put a, you know, a patch. I didn't come to patch up the old. I came to bring the new in all the way. What he was saying is the pharisaical, legalistic, external, self-righteous system and interpreting of the Scriptures could not contain the spirit that was filled with the teaching of the Messiah as King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.